Hello, welcome to the Dear Nikki podcast, where I'm going to be giving you personalized user research advice based on your questions or struggles. So let's dive into today's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome to part two. This is a first two-parter. First time for everything. Part two of mistakes I've made as a user researcher and also mistakes I've seen other people make in the user research field. But as we said before, I like to call out my own stuff more than I like to call out other people's because that would be weird. So we're going to talk primarily about mistakes that I've made so I can give some examples. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, I would highly, highly recommend it because I am going through 10 mistakes I've made as a user researcher in general, and part one holds the first five. And they are actually really important mistakes that no matter where you are in your career as a user researcher, it's important to think about them. And they, the first five mistakes actually all kind of tumble and layer on each other. So it's a really interesting uh, part one. So I would pause this now and go back to part one if you haven't listened to it already. If you have, welcome to part two. Again, we're going to talk about the next five mistakes I've made as a user researcher. I could make this a 100 part, <laughs> honestly, a 100 part podcast episode. It's like five more mistakes, five more mistakes. I've made so many. And that's okay because, again, mistakes are how we learn. They are important. They are not inherently bad, which is why it's great to talk about them and why I'm so pumped to get into the final five. Fab five. Ooh, that's a great show. Do you all watch Queer Eye? Fab five. I'm a huge fan of Queer Eye. Anyway, let's get into these because as we saw last time, the time just ran right away and suddenly I had to do a part two. (laughs) So let's get into the other five mistakes I've made as a user researcher. So the first one that we are going to talk about today is a mistake that I made that now I harp on all of the time, which is asking participants what they want. Okay. I used to do this all the time. So I would ask participants what they want, you know, what would they want? So future-based behavior, would they pay for it? Would you want a feature that could help you do this, that, and the other thing? Would you want a discount on this particular product? You know, would this feature make you want to buy this product? Oh, cringy, cringe, 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 but true. So yes, asking people what they want. So the problem with this is that inherently as people, as humans, I'm assuming that we're all humans, so I apologize if there are any non-humans listening to that this podcast episode. Also, if you are non-human, hit me up. I want to hear all about that. Let's do some research. <laughs> Anyways, I can get just fantastical sometimes. I have a really, really, really vivid imagination, which is awesome most of the times. Terrible when I'm scared because all the things, all the things. Anyways, asking people what they want is not ideal because as humans, we don't know very well what we want, especially 
as humans and those humans who are outside of product and tech. So this is why researchers sometimes tend to get filtered out of research studies is because we are in the product and tech field and we could probably think through things like feasibility, things like UX design, things like, huh, product management effort, right? I wonder if that would do good for the business. We can sometimes think about these things. Well, we often usually think about these things ideally, right? And we also, some of us, not all of us, I'm not a, I'm, I am absolutely horrendous at design, but I understand different components of design. And I can also understand what might make it again, make a business more revenue or what might be a helpful feature. Other people can't. When we ask people what they want, we're asking people to do our job. Sorry. That's like a really weird and intense way of saying it. But when we ask participants what they want, we are literally asking them to do the job for us. And they are not qualified to do that job. We are. We as the unit of researcher, designer, dev, and uh, product manager. And then also we can bring in marketing. We can bring in sales. We can bring in account management. We can bring in anybody, right? But we are asking participants to do our job when we ask them what they want right? And I did this for such a long time and it just led to really poor research results, right? So I would say, oh, people want this feature. They want that feature. And then we would just build the feature, right? And participants aren't qualified to to request features or tell us what they want because, I mean, sometimes you do have some exceptions when you get to very technical people that might have such a deep knowledge of a certain system or product where they could tell you what they want, but they are few and far between. And anyways, instead of focusing on what people want, we should focus on the problem underlying that want. You know, why do they want that? What problems would it help them solve? You know, what impact would that have on their day-to-day? What are they getting at with that want? So, what happened was when I switched to that why, so understanding the why or the problem beyond that want, what happened was I brought information back to my team that prompted instead of us saying, let's build this feature and then let's build that one. And then, you know, two people use it, if any. What happened was I brought the problem and we together were able to solutionize based on a problem, right? And oftentimes, whenever I've tried to look back on my work, the problem that we've solved and the solutions that we have created for that problem are very rarely what people asked for, what people said they wanted, right? Because again, those people aren't qualified to make those decisions, right? So instead of asking people what they want, really, really looking into, you know, what problem they're trying to solve instead, why are they asking for that, for that particular feature or for that particular thing? right? So go into that why. That's what we're here for. Another mistake that I've made as a user researcher was being too rigid. Oh yeah, this one's tough to admit to. And this one's also tough to talk about because I think that as researchers, we have to toe the line with boundaries, right? Where we say, you know, this this is not right or this this is okay. And 
we have to be very careful with how we word things and we don't want to scare people away and we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot by saying no to something and then nobody else ever comes to us with a research request again, right? But I used to be very, very rigid, right? So if people used to come to me and they didn't have like a valid study, I would just say no, right? I didn't work with them to try and make that a better study, right? If they came to me and they were like, but we don't have enough time for like, if, if they came to me, let's say with a usability test, this is what happened. And they said, hey, we need these results in two weeks. I would just be like, nah, that's not going to happen. You need to come to me when you have more time, right? Or if they were to come to me and say, hey, you know, we need uh, personas in four weeks, I would just say, no, you need more time, right? Or if they came to me being like, hey, we want to know a pricing model, I'd be like, no, nah, I can't do that. I don't know how. Well, I wouldn't say that because I was back in my perfectionistic ways. Listen to part one if you haven't. So I was way too rigid with my stakeholders and with my research. And this is mostly due to the fact that I was scared one of people undervaluing, oh dear, undervaluing, there we go, undervaluing user research. And I was also scared that people would think that they could do user research themselves. So this was born of a, out of a fear of democratization taking over my job, right? So I was super, super rigid. I also wanted to like feel more important not that I actually was, but I just wanted to feel more important in an organization. And for some reason, I felt like being able to say no and being able to be like, ah, your project isn't good enough would be make me more important when it just kind of made me, a, I don't want to swear, uh, a jerk. <laughs> so what I learned to do was kind of based off of improv. So I went to improv classes and I learned improv. I love improv so much. It's the best ever. So in improv, there's yes and, right? So whatever somebody says to you, you kind of go with it. You're not, if somebody comes up to you and they're like, this light bulb is falling out of the light. You don't say, no, it's not. It's right there, right? Instead you say, yes, this concept of yes and, where you're like, oh no, there it goes. We're in the dark, right? Like, <laughs> So you have this concept of just like rolling with it. Now, user research can't and should not just roll with it, right? We should not be doing personas in three weeks. We should not necessarily be doing usability tests in two weeks, right? However, we could imply this yes but or no but right so we have the yes and from improv which is just rolling with it and then we need to kind of come to this medium of between yes and and just a no and so i came up with the concept of no but right and this is where user researchers can be a thought partner to our stakeholders so they might come to us and say we need this usability test done in two weeks and you look and you say that is not possible as it is right now so no but if we narrow the scope down, we can pop this in an unmoderated study and I could actually get it done for you in like five days. What do you think? Right? So I was way, way, way too rigid, said no way too many times and didn't consider myself a thought partner for my stakeholders. So now whenever people come to me with a request that seems impossible or something that just doesn't seem right, I sit down and I'm a thought partner for them. So I, I've taken away that rigidity, like, okay, we can't get the proper amount of 
participants for this study. So what can we do? Can we do two phases of research where we do phase one of personas, right? And then we can only talk to seven people. So let's do phase one. We talk to seven people and we build a proto persona, but we have phase two coming in like a month or two down the line but it's promised and it's thought of and it's thought through and it's intentional. And then we talk to 10 more people and we can start to see, okay, let's let's see what that proto persona is and let's continue to build on that to create an actual persona. So trying to take away that rigidity as much as possible and be a thought partner. The next mistake that I made was taking on too many requests without enough thought. So I got into this snowball effect, which was wonderful in a way where I proved the value of user research and suddenly everybody wanted to do user research, right? So I had so many requests. I was a team of one. I was working across 12 teams. Not all of them needed research all the time. And some of them didn't really need any research, but I was still there just to make sure. And I just got this influx of requests and I was so terrified to say no because I didn't want to slow down that snowball, right? I was kind of happy in my snowball. I was like, great, look at what I did. People care. But I made so many mistakes doing this. I walked into so many prototype tests and usability tests where I brought up the wrong script. I started asking about the wrong thing. I shared the wrong screen. It was so embarrassing. I was very lucky again to have really nice colleagues. And then what happened is I was so exhausted from my research that I burnt out, right? And I wasn't then doing impactful research because the easier research to do was the evaluative research. So I would prioritize that because it was just easier. And then I was so tired, I couldn't think about the generative research, right? And so then what happened is I was I was reporting to my manager all the things that I had done, but they were kind of small projects. You know, there wasn't a big wow. And I was thinking about getting promoted and suddenly it was like, well, I'm not really doing the strategic work that I need to be doing to get promoted. I'm doing all this other stuff. So what I started doing was prioritizing user research projects and learning, taking that rigidity lesson of the no but and trying to apply that to my prioritization process. So if I showed people my roadmap, so something that I came up with was a roadmap and a backlog, and I came up with a prioritization process so that I could show people in an objective and transparent way how I was prioritizing research projects. And they came to me and I said, look, I can't slot this in as it is, but I can try and slot in a survey instead. It's going to be a narrow scope. It's not going to get us the exact right things that we need, in, but it's going to get us closer and closer, and then we can follow up in X amount of time, right? Uh, so I definitely started thinking about my requests, and there have been times where I've just had to say plainly no to a request, but I always say that I will put it in my backlog, and I always look at my backlog. Like, let's say that I have a pretty small study. I'll take a look at my backlog, and I'll see if there are any other things in my backlog that I could tack on to that study, right? Where I could say, ooh, this person, and then I'd reach out, hey, what do you still think about the study? Like, do you still need these insights? How can I help? And they say, yes. And I say, great, I'm going to tack this onto this other project to just get you some information, right? But really thinking about not taking on too many requests at once and using that lack of rigidity, so like that flexibility, <laughs> that's the word, using flexibility within those requests that come through to make sure that your time is spent doing the most impactful research, but that doesn't mean you're ignoring everybody else. Another thing that you could do is 
kind of like a carousel or like a continuous research program where lower priority projects get tested. I, I always think about lower priority projects generally as usability testing. But lower priority projects come through like once a month. There are two slots per month and people can sign up ahead of time for for those slots. And that's just a continuous thing that happens like kind of on the side of your roadmap. So that's another thing that you can do. If you are a manager and you're trying to train somebody who's more junior or an intern or somebody else, that is a great opportunity setting up a continuous research kind of testing for lower priority projects is a really great way to get them experience uh, in a more low stakes environment. So really think about the requests that you're taking on and make sure that they are super impactful for yourself and for the organization. And also make sure that you're not taking on too many so that you start making mistakes within your mistakes and get burnt out doing research that's not actually helpful for, for you as a researcher or the organization as a whole. So the fourth mistake that I've made within the context of this uh, part of the podcast is assuming stakeholders know what to do with my insights. <laughs> this is something that I did for a really long time. It's like I assumed that stakeholders went to like, I don't know, how to use insights school. <laughs> so something that happened is I learned at at a certain point how to write really great insights. I, I must admit, I did learn how to write really, really good insights that were, I hate the buzzword, actionable, right? And that was because I came up with the formula of what happened during the insight, why it happened, and the consequence. The consequence being the most important part. So what happens if we don't care about this insight, you know, or what could potentially happen if we don't address this problem that people are having? And so with that, I figured, okay, I'm giving you all this information, this information, and go do your things that you do, product managers and designers and devs, like go for it. And that didn't really work all the time. Sometimes it did, it did, and it depends on the research maturity of your organization. So how familiar stakeholders are with research and with using research in various ways. And that can also vary within the type of research that you do. So evaluative versus generative research, it can be a lot easier for people to take evaluative research and act on it because it's normally looking at something like experiential or flow-based that isn't working, right? So we see problems within the interface or within the experience, and we can highlight those within a usability test. So what are the usability issues? And we can more easily fix those things. However, when it comes to generative research and we're like, ooh, this really interesting insight about our users that we had no idea about. What, like, we had no idea that this existed. It's like an unknown unknown, which is the juiciest of insights. And we talk about it and then people are like, it's like crickets. I wish I had crickets now, like the <laughs> sound effect of crickets. I'm not gonna try and make that sound because it would probably come, come about horrendously. So, they're crickets. And we sit there saying, what happened? Why aren't people more excited about this super cool insight that could lead to so many different things? And again, that's because we're assuming that stakeholders know what to do with those insights. And I don't necessarily think that's fair. So something that I did is I started going through my reports as 
as a person who might be a stakeholder. So I sat, I did my best. I mean, of course, there's some bias and subjectivity in this, but I tried to put myself as a researcher aside and put on my product manager map or my designer or map, my product manager hat or my designer hat and read through my report, right? Woo. And like with the next steps that they should be doing, right? Which is putting something on a roadmap, designing something, testing something. I read through my my reports and I would have had no idea what to do if I was a designer with some of my reports, same with a product manager, right? And that's a big problem, right? So the person that you're delivering the thing to doesn't know how to use the thing, right? And we sometimes throw, or at least I did, I threw the insights over the fence and I said, okay, best wishes, you know, uh, let me know if you need anything. See ya, I'm on to the next. And what I didn't do was activate, right? So I didn't sit in that activation phase at all. And this activation phase, which is thinking about workshops, for instance, that's like one of the best ways to activate activate insights. And this the activities can be stuff like crazy eights. They can be how might we statements. They can be do, undo, redo. They can be method 365. You know, you can there, – there are so many different – workshop activities that you can use to activate your insights. But oftentimes we don't do that. So we don't help our stakeholders bridge the gap between our insights and solutions. And because they didn't go to insight usage school, they might not know how to do that. So your insights might not get acted on. So one of the best things that I started doing was thinking about that activation phase and and using that really seriously, especially when it came to bigger generative research, right? So now every single time in my projects, whenever I'm doing generative research, I automatically bake in a workshop, like an activation workshop. And again, that can be a method of or a bunch of different activities. It just depends on what I choose and what I think is best, but you can't really go wrong with things like how might we statements. And it's just so helpful and it's been such a shift with the work that I do with stakeholders because they also appreciate it because then you're not putting the onus on them. You're not just like, all right, see ya, like good luck. You know, you're you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, here's how I can further support you. So I do think that as researchers, we should be doing a better job in that activation phase. And I think that's how we also show our impact, right? So we're not just throwing insights over where people are like, I don't really understand the value of this, right? And where we're sitting, oh, like nobody's doing anything with this. Instead, we're bridging that gap through activation. And then finally, whew, we're at 23 minutes just about. Uh, my last mistake of the 10 is this one was really hard for me to, I don't know, acknowledge, I guess, in a way, because as a researcher, I was like, I'm an advocate for users. But as a researcher, I also have to acknowledge that I'm an advocate for teams and the business. If the business does not exist, I do not have a job, right? If the teams don't know what to do, I do not have a job. So on top of being advocates for our users, really, which I guess is a 
primary part of our job, we're also advocates for our teams and for the business. And what does that mean? We need to be involved in our teams as much as we can. We need to understand how to support them. We need to understand what their goals are. We need to understand how they interact with research, what they think about research, what we can improve about our research process for them because our our research process is a product for them, right? It's literally a product for product managers and designers and devs or whomever else you engage with, right? So we have to advocate for them as well. And sometimes they can make really poor decisions, but what we need to do is we need to remember we, we are there to help them make better decisions. We are not there to give them the decision to make. We can only help them make better decisions. So we need to advocate for them, which means doing things like including them in stakeholder, uh, including them in um, the research, like including stakeholders in goal setting, making sure that there's that shared alignment on what they need and, the the type of information that they're expecting from the research so that we can create something that gives them what they need and then taking it through to that activation phase so that we can help them bring the insight into a solution space right so that's how we advocate for our teams as well so we're bridging the gap this is what it means to bridge the gap between users and our teams right so we are that bridge and we're doing these things to bring these the, to bring the teams closer to our users because we can't always assume that they're going to be there with us and then finally we are actually as well advocates for the business and i know that this was hard for me to understand because i almost pitted like the users against the business or users against the product teams and that was a really detrimental mindset that i had because again if the teams don't do well i don't exist if the business doesn't do well i don't exist <laughs> right and so i think that's when when we think about how we're also advocating for the business, this puts us in a different light because that means that we're here to help the business and that's a whole new spin on research. So how can research help the business? How can we help the business get towards their metrics, their goals, you know, their, their uh, revenue, right? Because that's really what's important usually, typically, not always, but typically, how can we help the business move towards those revenue goals, right? How can we help them retain more customers? How can we help them acquire more customers? How can we help them, you know, develop loyal customers, right? How can we help them sustain revenue over time, right? So I think that that was one of the biggest mindset shifts for me that moved me from that kind of mid-level, like, oh yeah, I'm here for the users to more of a senior, wow, like, I'm actually here for the business and I have to understand what the business is trying to accomplish. I have to understand the business goals. I have to get comfortable with business, which I wasn't, right? I was not comfortable with business at all, but I had to sit in that place where I had to let go of that perfectionism. I had to seek feedback. I had to go ask people questions. I had to say, I don't know so many times. I had to say, I don't understand so many times. And I had to put my researcher hat on to understand the business. So I did a lot of stakeholder interviews to understand business metrics, business goals, what our vision is, why is that our vision, what's our strategy, what's our pricing model, what's our business model, are we profitable, what is that going to look like in uh, one, five, ten years, right? How can, like, where are we with revenue? How can we up revenue? Are we just bleeding customers uh, that we're trying to acquire? 
and we're not retaining them? Like, what are the biggest problems when it comes to us being a sustainable organization? And that was a really, really big shift for me. And I think that that's something that a lot more researchers can do, especially speaking with being more relevant in the field, especially right now with all of what's happening uh, layoff-wise and AI-wise and all of these other fear-mongering tactics. If you haven't listened to my episode on uh, AI, definitely do so if you're feeling a bit nervous about it because I try and dispel some of that. But I think really shifting into that business mindset and how I'm here to help the business and advocate for the business was really important too. We made it. We got through all 10. And again, I could probably think of 50 more. But those are the main mistakes that I've made as a researcher that I've seen in the research fields. And I highly, highly recommend thinking about them. Are you doing some of these? It's okay if you are. How do you shift them, right? How do you get out of that space and into a more positive one? How do you learn from those mistakes? I think that's the most important part is we, we can we can get sad about our mistakes and that's fine. You know, we're not here for toxic positivity, right? We're not here to be like, oh, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Mistakes don't matter. You shouldn't be sad. Well, be sad. I was sad plenty of times. I was sad. I almost quit so many times, right? And I was so, so super sad. But I eventually found ways to make lessons out of it and to learn as much as I can. That didn't mean that I wasn't sad. It didn't mean that I wasn't angry at myself, but I I tried to make a more positive spin on it of like, okay, what can I learn and what can I shift and how can I improve from this state so that I am happier and I am a better researcher. So I hope that that was helpful. Yay, we got through them. And I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe and submit your next question. And I look forward to talking to you all soon. Bye.